0: Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Stremming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. A few weeks ago, I shared a colleague's Facebook post, and to put it lightly, that post created some feelings in my followers. There were nearly 200 comments on the post, lots of reactions, and I want to address some of the things that came up here. The gist of the post was that reactive behaviors in dogs are normal and that it is the responsibility of the people handling the dogs to solve or at least manage or handle those behaviors. The post also implied that good puppy rearing techniques would limit the extent of those behaviors and the good relationship was imperative to these behaviors not being kind of a huge problem for folks. So you know how I like to start. We're going to start with some definitions because while I shared the post because I agreed with it, the implications of the post I might not always agree with, and the impact of the post was different from its intent. The words responsibility and blame came up a lot in the comments. They were equated as being the same thing, and so we're going to talk about that today. Let's dive into those definitions. Responsibility is defined as the state or fact of having a duty to deal with something. There's an alternative definition here that's a little muddy, makes things a little complicated, which is that responsibility is the state or fact of being accountable or to blame. So I'm going to lean on that first definition of having a duty to deal with the thing because that's how I view the word responsibility. There are clearly multiple definitions of responsibility. And so while responsibility can be equated with blame, for my purposes... I'm going to use the word blame. And so in in an effort to not use two words that mean the same thing, responsibility is going to be defined for the podcast as having a duty to deal with something. And then blame we're going to define as responsibility for a fault or a wrong. So again, little tricky that the word responsibility and the word blame, they're used in each other's definitions. So... Blame is going to be that accountability for a fault or wrong. Essentially blame implies that you are at fault. Responsibility implies that it is your duty to deal with the thing. Okay, so responsibility equals duty to deal with the thing and blame equals fault for the problem. Now, the way I see it, there are four ways for you to feel regarding responsibility and blame. Of course, there's more than four ways to feel, but four kind of combinations of responsibility and blame when it comes to a behavior problem your dog might be facing. You can experience neither responsibility or blame. You can experience both responsibility and blame. You can experience only blame and no responsibility or only responsibility and no blame. So let's pick these apart. First, let's look at experiencing neither blame nor responsibility. That's my dog is a barky, lungy, red hot mess of a problem, and it is not my fault and I'm not dealing with it. Essentially, this is the pretend it isn't happening route. There are likely to be very few actions regarding the dog's behavior. The actions probably have to do with the dog's life being very small or the dog infringing on the enjoyment of other people. So the dog is either a big problem or he's isolated to the point that he is not a problem for anybody except for himself. It won't come as a surprise to you that I believe that it is not acceptable for a pet owner to take neither responsibility nor blame for their dog's problems. So let's look at the flip side of that coin. You can be responsible for something and also take blame for it. One of my longtime friends and students commented on this original post Stating that blame was important, that we have to take the blame for something in order to take the responsibility for it. I don't necessarily think you have to have both. I think it's emotionally challenging to take blame for something ever, but I do think taking responsibility for something uh, for which you are to blame leads to immense personal growth. It leads to a lot of action towards managing and treating this behavior, and so I am good with this one. Taking both blame and responsibility works, and I have done this in the past. I tend to take both blame and responsibility for a lot of my dog's problems. If I'm being kind to myself, I can see that the trainer I was when the problem developed didn't know any better, and then I don't place blame on myself, but I do take responsibility. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. In most situations, I believe that I can do better than to allow a problem to develop, and so I will probably take blame and responsibility. That doesn't mean that's the right answer, though, because I don't think there is a right answer. The next one is to take zero responsibility, but all of the blame. And this happens, and I gotta tell you, that was happening a lot in the comments on this post. The comments were saying, I already blame myself. This is already all of my fault. And implying then that because of that, there is little responsibility because how is a person who is fully to blame to also be responsible Because surely won't they screw it up anyway? I mean, that's the implication. That's not what I'm saying. If I take all of the blame, that is going to result in wallowing, self-pity, complaining. It's not going to result in a lot of personal growth. And if I'm not taking responsibility and only taking the blame, that's going to be emotionally challenging and relationships will suffer, not only with my dog, but with other people around me who have to experience my dog, with my trainer. This is not a great way to go. Taking all of the blame and none of the responsibility is, I think, uncommon long-term, but can be a really common short-term kind of front response to your dog developing a problem. So if you find yourself really hammering down on that self-blame and not taking action, not taking responsibility, I would encourage you to check yourself and see if you can adopt some of that responsibility. And I would also encourage you to check yourself and see if you can shake any of that blame. So the next one is take all the responsibility, but don't take the blame. This is maybe the most healthy, and I put that in quotations, way to go about it. You can look at the problem, see that there were many factors that went into the problem, that they are not your fault, but that they are your responsibility. This is what I usually encourage for my clients. Because like I said a minute ago, If a problem has developed, then obviously the trainer I was in the moment was not able to prevent it. And therefore, I am not so much at fault as I am up to the responsibility of solving this problem. The actions, when we take responsibility and not blame, will simply be towards change. I won't waste energy and time berating myself or wishing I had done something different. I think it's clear that this is the one I recommend you adopt if you can Take responsibility, don't worry so much about the blame. If you are to blame, like if you really made a huge mistake and you're aware of it, then own it. And you know, take a moment to cry about it into your ice cream if you want, but own it and decide simply that you will do something different in the future and then take that responsibility. When I can see what my mistake is, I'm actually really happy about it because then I can say, yep, that was my fault. This is what I did. And I now have the power not to do that in the future. So I can see that as a really empowering thing rather than as a kind of a self-deprecating thing. So taking the blame, I think, is effective if you can do it that way. You can say, yes, that was my fault. I own that. And this is what I'm going to do about it. Rather than this is my fault, I'm a bad person, I've ruined everything, yada, yada, yada. That just doesn't help, right? Like if you do feel that way, I would encourage you to take a moment to fully feel that way and then choose to move forward rather than kind of staying in those feelings. So bottom line is that the dog gets better if you take the responsibility, but the dog doesn't always get better if you take the blame. So blame is not the pathway to dog getting better responsibility is the pathway to the dog getting better so whether you take that blame or not and you get to decide you need to take the responsibility and that also means to get help if you need help because taking responsibility does not mean and now it's all on me and i have to handle this on my own and sometimes taking blame encourages us to think that way i think so sometimes if i think yeah that was my fault I now have to force myself to walk across the hot coals and fix it. When actually I can say, you know, that was my fault. I see that it was my fault. I see what I can do differently in the future to prevent that. And I'm not totally sure how to fix it. So I'm going to ask this colleague and that's me taking responsibility. Or I'm going to hire somebody and that's me taking responsibility. So take the blame if you want, if that feels productive to you. But definitely take the responsibility whether you take the blame or not. And now let's get into some Patreon questions. The first one comes from Connor. Connor writes, Interested in any data or anecdata you've come across and experiences you've had with food caching, especially when the behavior is conceptual rather than functional. An example, Dog rubs nose along vinyl floor to bury a food bowl. Right, so Connor's asking about food caching. Food caching is, as it sounds, food storing. It is a deeply embedded kind of biological response in dogs. You don't see it in all dogs. You do see it in certain individuals across, you know, across the entire board of dogs. If you've never seen your dog try to bury food or hide food, then your dog kind of doesn't have the food caching installed, so to speak. Some of them are big With it, some of them are not. I have seen it change in regards to, like, how much the dog is fed. If the dog is literally full, they might try to cache the food. When they eat and then want to kind of bury the rest of it, that looks to me like saving it for later, kind of food caching. I always want to ask if those dogs also would guard it if you approached. So, like, would they bite you if you tried to take the bone that they're trying to bury in their crate? You know, that's always a question that I have. Interestingly, and this is anecdata, as you mentioned, I do find that food caching goes down when kind of welfare goes up. So when we have addressed all the dog's basic needs, we tend not to see excessive food caching. If the dog's not worried that anybody's going to take their stuff, why do they need to hide it or bury it? That sort of thing. That doesn't mean that if your dog does this, that your dog has a problem. So, do, so hear me loud and clear. I'm not saying that. I am saying in my personal dogs, they only do this when they are in a situation that makes them kind of worried someone's going to take it or they're in a situation where they don't want to eat it right now because they're too anxious, stressed, fill in the blank to eat, but they recognize its importance and so they want to hide it. So in kind of the wild, right, you might see a... Canned animal bury part of a carcass that it killed because it is not safe to stop and eat the carcass right now. So there's potential threat. They bury the carcass they leave they come back when the environment is safer and eat it then people who actually study these things are probably like sarah actually here's all the reasons that it happens yada yada like i'm not going to pretend to be an expert on this but you're asking me for um anecdote and the anecdote that i have is basically like for instance raya only does this if she is if i give her something to chew in the crate in the car the only time she does it she doesn't do it in it just in a crate in the house she doesn't do it if she's not crated um and she doesn't try to hide her meals at all it's if I give her something to chew in the crate in the car and that reads to me as stuff could happen like I need to be on alert in the crate in the car so I can't relax and chew this right now I need to bury it. So for me this is just something to be curious about unless the dog is causing damage to its body like it's rubbing its nose raw trying to bury something in vinyl floor or in the bottom of a crate and then we need to be a little bit not just curious, but also take action to help that not happen anymore. In general, I think it's an interesting things that dog do. Dogs do. I think it's interesting to look at the parameters surrounding when they do it. I'm re- I'm remembering right now that Iggy, who had who has dealt with some serious separation and also confinement distress in her life, would bury like a raw bone in the crate. Essentially, she'd try to bury it in the vinyl bottom of the crate if I left her alone too long in the crate. Otherwise, she's just going to finish it. Like she, she's never going to bury a bone if she's not in a crate. So that tells me that this is also a little bit of a stress response or a lot of a stress response. And again, needs to be kind of counted as the data towards maybe she's not comfortable in the crate and at the time i mean we're talking like 12 years ago that i observed this at the time i was like you know i didn't understand why and she never had a bone out of a crate so i thought she just was always going to do it now i understand that she's only going to do it in the crate because she's too nervous to eat but she recognizes that as a resource so she's going to try to hide it so hopefully that offered some insight for you connor Next one comes from Sarah, who writes I used to do lots of It's Your Choice games with my dogs, and thanks to you, I'm now aware of their potential for fallout. Although I now believe the best strategy is to simply put marker cues on stimulus control, I am wondering about the possibility of modifying It's Your Choice, particularly for helping non geeky humans who are overwhelmed with the idea of having a marker system. In It's Your Choice, the dog's attempt to eat the food is punished by the food disappearing. If the presentation of the food did not change based on the dog's behavior, example, if it was in a container so that the dog could see it but not access it, would that be more benign than the traditional negative punishment procedure, or is it just the same because the dog experiences frustration? The question occurred to me while watching my dog attempt to open her ready treat herself when my remote malfunctioned. Thanks so much. Sarah, thank you for this thoughtful question. I... Probably could record a whole episode on this. So having an advanced marker cue system in which you can tell the dog all the various ways to take reinforcement and teaching the dog not to take reinforcement via it's your choice are not two different options that exist with nothing else in between them. Clarity around cues does not have to mean complex clarity around cues. One cue can indicate to the dog, take reinforcement. And we can use the context of what reinforcement is available to tell them which one we're cueing. For instance, I could teach my dog that the sound of a clicker means take the available reinforcement. And then in a session, I could be training with food and he goes for the food when I click And then another session I could be training with a toy and it goes for the toy when I click. And as long as I am very clear about what reinforcers are available all the time and that I have been very clear that click means take reinforcement, the problem is solved that way as well. So I don't need to be super geeky. I don't need to have, you know, seven or 15 marker cues or whatever, how many you've got. I need to be very clear with at least one signal that means take reinforcement. The it's your choice kind of route is teaching dogs to default to not taking reinforcement. So the goal with it's your choice is that the dog defaults to kind of asking the person or offering behavior to the person before taking reinforcement. Because the procedure leans heavily on negative punishment, And honestly, quadrant speak is difficult. It's Your Choice operates in most quadrants, uh, in most of the four quadrants, kind of in every single repetition, it's very complex. Because though it does lean heavily on punishment, which is the punishment of the dog going for the food. And I'm not saying punishment in a like devil horns, terrible way. It's simply procedurally what is happening. Because of that, there is potential for fallout, especially if the dog maybe has a tendency towards not taking food or weirdness about food or weirdness about toys or not loving toys or whatever, then I wouldn't punish the act of taking reinforcement in those dogs. And in fact, just in my work in general, I tend not to punish the act of taking reinforcement. That is kind of part of my training. And that's why I lean away from it. But that's also why I need to train the dog to understand when reinforcement is actually available to him. I will do that by simply blocking access to reinforcement in the absence of the cue. And that is not the same thing as it's your choice. So it's your choice is a procedure in which food is available. And when the dog goes for it off cue, food is taken away. That is very different from food is simply not available off cue. And we can talk about this more in depth. Perhaps it requires some video. Perhaps it requires more discussion. But in general, what I want you to understand is that if I'm working with, let's say, a bowl of food, and it's in my hand, and the dog kind of wants to pounce on it to go for it, and I just block the dog from getting it, I just don't let them get it, and meanwhile, I am marking and reinforcing other behaviors that are happening, I'm not using the deliberate removal of the bowl to try to affect behavior. I'm simply blocking undesired responses from being reinforced. So Sarah, I hope that that helps. I want you to come back over to Patreon and tell me if it didn't. And I will certainly go more in depth if necessary. Next one comes from Michael. Michael writes, I have a 17-month-old Pitt Amstaff Mix Rescue with an abundantly stocked buffet table of all the big feelings. When we are out on our daily walks, dirt road countryside vibe, and a neighbor is in their yard gardening or someone is sitting on their porch talking on their cell phone or perhaps, God forbid, getting in and out of a car in their driveway, etc., he is like Curious George on crack and drops anchor out on the road directly in front of their house. Full stop. Immovable statue mode. In situations where he is rapidly loading up and blazing down threshold lane, like another dog barking behind a fence, etc., I get busy and start doing all the things I know to do to get him moving and create distance with hopefully not having to resort to physically reeling him via his leash like a desperate fisherman. When squirrels, used to systematically ruin my life during our walks, I began marking and treating as soon as he would visually lock onto one, and that thankfully shifted that whole particular reactive dynamic for the behavior. But this feels more fixating obsessive and less uber arousal predatory. But the behavior is getting incredibly rehearsed, and it also leaves us awkwardly camped out like paparazzi in front of everyone's house. Any thoughts or guidance would be immensely appreciated and thank you so much for all you do and for all you share. Michael added a clarification that says, the dropping anchor in front of people's homes when any activity is happening is what felt fixating slash obsessive where the squirrel dealio felt uber arousal predatory. Hence, I didn't know if the mark treat approach would have the same success with the anchor dropping as with the squirrel chasing. All right, Michael, you've got a lot going on. Good work. Sounds like this dog is really challenging. I would say it is very much worth a try to pull out the stuff that has worked for you in the squirrel stuff with the anchor dropping stuff. So if the kind of rapid fire marking and reinforcing around squirrels, which is essentially shifting the motivating operations at play, you're kind of saying like squirrels are a big deal. Ooh, look. This other thing's a big deal. Be involved in the other thing. If that's working for you with the squirrels, it's very much worth a try with this other behavior route. So with this other behavior the dog is offering. So if you have a set of skills that effectively snaps the dog out of kind of a predatory State it is worth trying those set of skills in this other state, this kind of fixation state that he's getting into. Especially because you're not totally sure what's driving the fixation. If we knew what the function of that behavior was, we could probably be a little smarter. So if you think you know, definitely write back in in the new Patreon questions thread and let me and let me know, and maybe I can help a little bit further. Probably it's about information gathering. Probably it's, ooh, I need to watch this. This could become exciting for me. In which case, producing something else that definitely is exciting for him, like working with you, following a treat magnet, doing some rapid fire behaviors for cookies, might very well work. So I want you to try the stuff that worked with squirrels with this kind of house stocking paparazzi move and let us know how it goes. And another one from Sarah who writes, if the dog does an undesirable behavior and the handler cues an alternative behavior and reinforces it, did the handler's interruption reward also reinforce the undesirable behavior? This is probably a kindergarten level question, uh, she says, and then edits to add, the specific scenario that prompted this question is that I trained my dog's recall by pairing food with the recall word, non-contingent on the dog's behavior, much like training a marker cue. Her recall cue is very likely to work, and it's always rewarded. Now I'm wondering what the difference is in her mind between her recall cue and a marker cue, and that means food is available at the mama. If she chases a dog and I call her, am I reinforcing her for chasing? So it's not kindergarten level at all, Sarah. I think actually the fact that you're thinking about this at all shows that you're very much not in kindergarten. A lot of people train a recall like this. Um, Where they simply teach the dog that a, a word means big payout. And that's all the training they do. And then they rely on the dog valuing that payout over other things to work for them in certain environments. That's certainly how my recall training begins, among, you know, there's a lot of other pieces involved, but that's definitely part of it. But understand that there's a few things going on here. One is that all markers are cues, right? So a marker signal is a cue to take reinforcement. So if I've trained the dog here means huge payout. So I've trained her that word means huge payout. And I've also trained her that get means, you know, bite a toy from my hands. So let's say I've trained both of those things. And the huge payout is food based. So just to clarify, could I then shape a behavior by using the word here. So could I send the dog for the weave poles? And as soon as she finishes, I say here, she runs to me and I give her a huge payout. Just like I could shape her to run to the weave poles and then I could say get, and she runs back me and bites a toy. The answer is probably yes. But if here is used in this recall context, so essentially you are using it to cue a behavior that is, come eat this big food, but you're using it in scenarios that are varied uh, with a lot of different things going on, you are unlikely to shape those other behaviors because this reinforcement appears random, right? So could I shape chasing dogs by cueing the dog to come bite a toy instead of chase the dog? In theory, sure. Am I likely to? Probably not. And the reason is the dog itself is its own cue, discrimi- g- discriminative stimulus, to the dog to go chase. And all I'm doing is asking the dog to come do another thing. So essentially, if my dog sees a tree and is going to go pee on it, and he's thinking tree equals relief of urine coming out. This is this is a great uh, example, I know. And I, he's on his way to a tree, and I say, get. And he breaks off the tree, and he comes, and he takes the toy from my hand. I'm not shaping seeking out the tree because the tree was motivated by something else. I'm instead, I'm just presenting a better option. I'm just saying, oh, no, do this instead. Does that make sense? So of course, if I did it repeatedly, could I? Yes, but those behaviors would look different. Because the motivation for those behaviors would change. So the dog would kind of be approaching a tree, but he'd be looking at me over his shoulder. Are you going to mark? Are you going to mark? Are you going to mark? And he probably wouldn't even pee on the tree because he wasn't thinking about peeing on the tree that entire time. So hopefully that helps Sarah. Again, if it doesn't, come let me know. Next one is from Nikki. Nikki writes, I'm opening a huge can of worms here and I know it. I'm just hoping for another perspective. I teach a lot of pet classes to adults and 4 H'ers but occasionally get experienced dog people taking classes with puppies for or for CGC experience, often because I'm over the top with my dog safety protocols so they feel comfortable in a pet class situation. I'm super respectful of their training techniques and always tell people to do what is best for their dogs. When it comes to teaching accepting a friendly stranger and the grooming handling portions of the class, so again that's part of the, I'm just weighing, I'm just interjecting for everybody that that's part of the Canine Good Citizen, which Nikki mentioned is a reason people might take this class. I work hard, to first help dogs ignore me then come in for some low-key interaction only after the owner releases the dog to say hi and work up to touching all the feet etc. I've recently had strict obedience people in class who want no interaction but a pat for exam and they control the situation very tightly for the grooming portion. They want no talking just handling and move on. I guess I'm curious if this is an obedience thing. I play played obedience as one of my sports but by no means consider myself an expert. I definitely understand not wanting to practice poor behaviors but in asking well how do you let your dog know he's allowed to greet a friend, a relative or even your vet? I was told that their dog is never allowed to greet anyone else. Handling by others is completely trained. I'm trying to wrap my head around around that. Can you help me? I'm all for training a chin rest stay and other things to help the dog understand what is expected of them but I know a lot of dogs who can handle a stand for exam but are definitely not going to accept a stranger in less structured environments. Yet, if what we want is an owner who advocates for their dogs and dogs who are trained and able to handle public spaces, then maybe none of that even matters. And truly, this just happened to me. I know it's a discussion online as well, but I hadn't been faced with it in classes at all. Nikki, thanks for writing in. And first of all, thanks for being a trainer, being a pet dog trainer, and running those classes. This comes down to goals and respecting the goals of your clients. It is perfectly fine if, in my opinion, if the goal of the client is not for the dog to be friendly but is for the dog to as the cgc states accept a friendly stranger and accept grooming i like my dogs to be a little bit friendlier than that but some of them aren't going to be just by their personality and it is really important for them to also learn to accept a stranger and accept grooming and it is easier for them to do so if you do not interact with them socially so if i had my dog raya in your class nikki i'd probably be perfectly fine to do exactly what you normally do so she accepts the pat or the grooming or whatever and then she might get to say hi to you that would be fine for her if i had my dog felix in the class we'd need to keep it very structured we'd need to keep it the way that your obedience people are asking for it to be kept that's not because he's not friendly it's because he has really big over the top feelings about being friendly and i don't want those things involved in training situations so i think this comes down to what you're already good at which is respecting your clients goals and their requests another one from connor who writes What is your standard process for coaching a client through getting both baseline vet work and especially inquisitive testing done? Have you found specific language helpful when working with a vet who may, for myriad valid reasons, be less inclined to get curious about a seemingly healthy dog? This is a challenge, Connor. First of all, we as behavior consultants or dog trainers can't or shouldn't tell vets what to do, right? But we can engage in curious conversations with them. Sometimes it is a matter of, this vet is not interested in being curious with us and so we're going to find another one but oftentimes if i can kind of present my case and i might do this via email i might say hey here's my case notes on your patient and here's some questions i have do you see any validity to that that kind of thing i love it when i can have that kind of conversation with the vet i can't always so typically i don't tell my clients specifically what to ask for because i'm kind of not supposed to and I will only do that if I have a really strong inclination about something that I believe has been missed. In general, I need to be able to give the client ex- very specific bullet point reasons for my being curious about certain things. It can't just be, well, I have a feeling that there's something wrong with this dog. Sometimes I do have that feeling, but I need to come up with bullet points. Presenting the vet with bullet points regarding the behavior and then saying in the past this has been this is really helpful. So if you don't have extensive experience yet and you can't say in the past it has been this, That's when you rope in a colleague, you rope in somebody else, you say a colleague had this, this is what happened. Like you have to present veterinarians with evidence. That's how they think. That's how they've been trained to think. They need you to say, I'm curious about this and this is exactly why. It's about the best I can do in a Patreon question, but it is important for us to have really good conversations with our clients and to keep that vet always kind of in that triangular relationship between us and the clients and the vet. And last one for this week comes from Lauren. Lauren is referencing a Cog Dog Club episode. Cog Dog Club happens once a month in Patreon as well as in the membership. And Lauren's question is as follows My takeaway is that keeping the reps low lets the dog learn while minimizing physical fatigue from the exercise, which could lead to icky feelings with that item. Do you feel that the same could apply to mentally challenging tasks? Keep reps low for difficult sessions, or should the session not be that mentally difficult in the first place? In that, you should split, not push, etc. Okay, so essentially Lauren's asking, should we keep reps low if the thing we're asking for is hard? And the answer is yes. If the thing we're asking for is hard, there are only going to be so many good reps in the dog that they can give you. And you should not ask for more than that. You can't make everything easy. Some things are just mentally hard. When the thing you're asking for is just mentally hard, you're going to need to keep your reps low or physically hard. However, if you are shaping a new behavior, you should be getting a lot of reps in because you should have split finely enough that that is possible. Thank you all so much for your questions. Catch you next time. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.